Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, owner and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. According to our guest, Alexia Cambon, Senior Director of Research at Microsoft, there is no going back to the way we worked before. Flexibility is no longer seen as a perk by employees, but as a right. Flexible working has produced a crisis of trust and a productivity paranoia in employers. But there needs to be a mindset shift and recognition that performance does not equal presenteeism, states Kanban. The pandemic and emergence of generative AI have radically changed how employees experience corporate culture and firms must embrace this new reality. The question will become whether leadership is ready for the changes the workplace of the future presents. On the podcast today, we'll explore principles from the world of sports that can inform more human-centric work models, key data on what employees need, and how leaders can implement flexible, collaborative, and empathetic work environments that drive performance. So, Alexia, before we dig into the massive amount of research you've done around the future work, can you share a bit about your career background and your perspective on where we are today in the transformation of work? Sure. Yeah. And thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. Um, so I'm Alexa. I'm a senior director of research uh, working in the Modern Work Org uh, at Microsoft, um, where I've been working for coming up to a year now. Uh, prior to that, um, I was uh, a lead researcher at Gartner for about a decade, <laughs> where I uh, co-led the Future of Work Reinvented Key Initiative for a very long time. Um, and way back before that, uh, I was uh, pursuing two degrees in law and then decided I didn't want anything to do with law <laughs> and became a became a researcher instead. So that's that's my career in a nutshell, but it's for sure very accurate to say future work is 99.9% of my day job, which essentially consists of asking very big questions about how the world of work is changing and trying to find data back answers to those questions. So how much did your role looking at the future work completely change after the pandemic? I mean, obviously that had a major disruptive effect, but weren't some of these these changes going forward even before the pandemic? Oh my gosh, that's such a great question. I remember very clearly the moment where it felt like we were building the boat as we were trying to sail it, uh, which was, um, you know, as the pandemic um, was just sort of starting and we had we were in the midst of a very big research study and we just realized we had to pivot course because there were much bigger questions that became apparent that needed answering and they were all questions that we were living they were all questions around you know how does team connection uh suffer or benefit from being a distributed workforce um, you know, how do you conduct uh, an effective hybrid meeting? You know, very nitty-gritty questions like that. Um, should we expect flexibility once offices reopen? Um, what does the average work week look like? And, you know, there weren't answers to those questions in the middle of the pandemic, but it was becoming very, very clear that we needed to start doing the work to at least set up structures in which we could explore different options and different models. Um, So I think you're absolutely right in pointing out that some of these questions predated the pandemic. And by that, I mean, we're long overdue. It was long overdue that we asked ourselves more about 
um, the right for employees to have flexibility and the right for them to integrate their own personal needs into the way they work because the way you work has such a huge impact on your personal happiness. Um, and so to be able to bring that more into, into the work models that we have in place, I think it was, it was time that we did that. And the only way we could really do that was if we had this huge remote work experiment that the pandemic became. Yeah, huge work experiment. We had a huge experiment on so many different levels. You know, it's interesting. The data shows that human-centric work models work to better performance, better retention, and lower fatigue versus location-focused approaches. Now, we talk about human-centric, but human-centric and location-centric are not mutually exclusive because for some people, location-centric work models are more human to them. What makes a human-centric model so effective? Yeah, and I should attribute this study, obviously, to Gartner uh, and my time there. This was one of the major studies I worked on uh, in 20, I want to say 2021 uh, or 2022. Um, and really, the first big finding there was if you design every single um, work principle around a location, so around an office, around a physical headquarters, as opposed to around your people, around the human, um, if that dictates every decision you make, we saw worse outcomes. And so the difference essentially between uh, a human-centric model and a location-centric model is when you're thinking about things like, you know, what does, um, what does flexibility look like? You have to think about it in terms of humans have certain needs that need to be taken into consideration when you're designing work. And if location is at the center of everything that you do, you're not gonna take those needs into consideration. If the human is at the center of the way you think about work, then you might suddenly realize the benefits of having two days a week at home, where for whatever reason, you know, it's a quieter environment, you don't have to do the commute, you're able to pick up your kids from school, that provides a more holistic, um, a more holistic success of several outcomes where I think traditionally, historically, we've always just assumed that work has to happen in an office between the hours of nine to five, and it can't happen anywhere else. And essentially, the pandemic proved that wrong. You know, it, it's interesting because obviously, when the pandemic took place, there were a lot of things that had to be done very fast in brand new ways. And in the banking industry, um, there there became a PPP lending process or distribution process that that the government put in place on a Thursday and the the financial institutions were told they had to have it in place by Monday. When, if you had talked about the ability to build a brand new product in a three-day period with nobody able to get together, you would have said there was no way that could happen. But it did. And even with that experience and other experiences like that in the banking world, as well as other industries, you have a lot of organizations, a lot of leaders that have a very difficult time of letting go of legacy work models. We have examples in the States where Jamie Dimon has said he wants everybody to be at work. And he's not the only person. Being at work means in the facility itself. Sometimes there's flexible days, but but overall there's there's organizations that are holding on tightly to the ability to have people in the office. How do you work with organizations to help them let go of that 
tendency to hold on to something so dearly that may not be right for everybody and actually may hurt the ability to hire going forward? Well, one thing we have to be empathetic towards that we have to be conscious of is that we have worked a certain way for decades and human behavioral change takes a long time. It takes a long time to form new habits. It takes a long time to change mindsets. If we think back to that human-centric versus location-centric modeling, a location-centric model, with it comes certain attributes, and those attributes is what we have founded a lot of our leadership philosophy on. So one of the biggest attributes of a location-based model is visibility. Right? If I can get all of my employees into one location, I can see them. And for the longest time, we have equated seeing people with assuming that they're working. And so obviously, if you suddenly take that visibility away, your leader is stand, standing there thinking, I don't know if they're working. I've always relied on visibility to feel comfortable and reassured that my people are working. So that requires a whole other new leadership philosophy. Um, the other really important attribute that has always existed within a location-based model is consistency, is standardization. We're giving everyone the same thing. We're giving everyone the same work environment and we're getting everyone in there in the same work hours. And we expect them all to operate in that same way. And that historically has always been very important because the idea has always been, if I give everyone the same thing, I'm treating everyone fairly. But we now know that there is a huge difference between equality of experiences and equality of opportunity. And that is essentially what equity is. Equity isn't giving everyone the same thing, it's giving everyone an equal opportunity. And that might look different. You know, not everyone is, is hardwired to work well in an office, just like not everyone is hardwired to work well at home, just like not everyone is hardwired to work well, you know, at night versus in the morning. We're all different. And so I think, I have a lot of empathy for leaders who suddenly have seen visibility, consistency, standardization taken away from them because that's what they grew up knowing. But also maybe it was time that we questioned to what extent those things make up good leadership philosophy. So, you know, it's interesting because in a certain way, this gets down to trust, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's trusting employees to do what they're supposed to do or trusting employers to allow the flexibility to do what they want to do. It's, it's interesting because a brand new Deloitte study just came out that said the, the number of people that want a hybrid work environment has gone up 6%, which, which when you think, gosh, I can't believe it's still going up. I would have thought that maybe there's been a peak and people are getting back to normal. Well, normal is not going to be normal. And, and what I get concerned about when I look at certainly the financial services industry is that we have a hard time letting go of legacy thoughts and legacy processes. And even more importantly, when they look at empty buildings, which is a monetary decision, it is very hard not to force people into it. Well, we're going to give you some flexibility. We're going to let you do three days at work a week as opposed to five. Is there, a, is there a model that is best or is it really getting down to a human-centric work model that says every single person is different? It's a personal decision. Yeah, well, a couple of things that you touched on there that maybe we can pass out. I think the first thing is the value proposition of the office. What is the value proposition of the office today? It's a huge question. It's one that 
millions of dollars is being spent on figuring out the answer to that question. And for the most part, the research is pointing towards the value proposition of the office is people. <laughs> it's having people in the office that I come in for to meet and be with and work together with. That sets up a very interesting conundrum for leaders because the big problem right now is there aren't that many people in an office. So if you're gonna sell the office as, this is the place you come to meet people, but then your offices are empty, you're not gonna do well on that marketing promise, right? So that is where I think we see a lot of the times uh, the mandate to force people back in to create a critical mass of people so that the office then becomes appealing and attractive. But as we've also seen, there is a lot of backlash to that approach. Um, what we've seen at, at, in the Microsoft research that we've just done is that the better model, uh, the more impactful model is one that we're calling moments that matter, which is there are certain moments, the research suggests, where it is really important to get your people together, um, where being together in those moments creates energy, creates momentum and sustains those interactions. I don't think anyone wants to go into an office to do something they could do at home. And no one wants to go into an empty office unless it's to do heads down focus work. So there are certain cases where the office has, you know, a value proposition that is unique to you. But on the whole, if we're thinking about what should offices be used for today, for, for the most part, it is to have those moments that matter where we're together and we can create that sense of togetherness and community. And that does not rest on a set number of days a week right like that if you think about if you think about your project life cycle for example you know i can tell you right here and now on a nine month research project life cycle with my team that i'm running i can tell you exactly what are the days where it would be really helpful for my team to come together because either there's high tension in certain of these meetings either because we need to have stakeholders around a table to talk to them about what we're seeing in the data either because you know we want to brainstorm and we want to iterate and that I think is a much smarter approach to thinking about how we want to use the office is along the lines of a life cycle, along the lines of the moments in the life cycle that matter rather than the number of days in a week that we think would be good to get a critical mass in the office. So what types of flexibility do employees need today and how does it help drive results? And maybe playing off your last answer to a bit. Yeah. So. Let's start first with the importance of flexibility. Why is flexibility important today? Um, I think for a long time, we have assumed that we could separate work, professional life and personal life really neatly and put them in two different boxes and they never need to interact with each other. And as a result, the expectation has always been, don't bring your personal life into work, keep them separate. But we know that you know, the idea of work-life separation or work-life balance is a bit of a myth. Your personal life does impact on your professional life and your professional life does impact on your personal life. Like, who am I the first person I'm gonna talk to if I've had a really bad day at work? My husband. <laughs> you know, he is absolutely <laughs> gonna feel my bad day at work. Um, and so these things impact each other. And so we can't separate them neatly into boxes. And I think what flexibility does is it makes it okay for you to say, look, I'm working from home today because you know, I, I need a quiet day at home or I only got three hours sleep because my baby was up all night. Um, and that I think is inherently healthy to be able to showcase your full human self at work 
and integrate personal needs into that holistic circle that is made up of business needs, team needs, customer needs. Personal needs should have a seat at the table. It should be okay for you to display what you personally need in order to perform at your best. So that's why flexibility is important. Um, then when we talk about how we exercise that flexibility, it again comes back completely to what you were just saying around trust. Because what is gonna happen is there will come a time, and it probably comes on a daily basis to be honest, where you have to ask yourself, is my personal need more important than my customer need? Or is my personal need more important than my business need, than my team need? And that is where you have to equip employees to be able to make those decisions in a way that has a satisfactory outcome. And sometimes we'll fail, sometimes we won't have the right answer, but not giving employees that option doesn't feel healthy to me. You know, you know, it's interesting because with this hybrid work environment or the ability to at least have some hybrid flexibility, you know, we're seeing it happen more and more frequently. Sometimes recently, you know, COVID is starting to rear its ugly head again in certain in certain areas. We've had major heat waves where schools have been closed in the States where people, parents have to stay home. This was a lot harder. They'd have to take a vacation day in the past. Well, now there's a little bit more flexibility. There's a little bit more feeling and empathy from the company standpoint where a person can actually take those days to be with their kids, to help them homeschool for that one or two days that there may be an impact. But when you talk about empathy from managers, what's it take to lead with empathy in a hybrid work environment, especially when there's less visibility yeah, it's interesting because visibility creates the illusion that you know what's happening. And I think that is often a very dangerous, a very dangerous dynamic for a leader. Um, and one of the things that I try very hard um, to follow as a principle, as a leader, is to not lead with assumptions, but lead with questions. And I think visibility when when you see what's happening in front of you you make certain assumptions when you don't see what happens in front of you it becomes necessary to ask questions because if you lead with assumptions without any any visual intelligence any feedback you are going to get it wrong and so that to me is one of the most important characteristics of an empathetic leader is that they lead with questions, not with assumptions, and that they take the time to really sit down and root cause and diagnose what is happening. And that is difficult in an environment that is fast paced and that is complex and that is dynamic because when you are called as a leader to make decisions, you wanna be able to make them quickly and you don't feel like you have the time, especially with the pace of work as it is now, to sit down and ask questions about, you know, what made you do this? And why did you send that email? And, you know, what made you edit that PowerPoint in that way? But I think that is at the core of empathy. It's, it's really taking the time to understand why people act the way that they do. I mean, that is the definition of empathy, right? It's like, I can put myself in your shoes yeah. and try to understand what's going, what's going on in, in your brain. So in, in all the research you've done, you've obviously seen certain organizations that have implemented new work models very successfully. You've also seen ones that have done it very poorly, I'm sure. 
is there any are there any key elements you know when we're talking about tactical implementations are there any key elements that really are consistent with winners versus losers and then where's the 20 percent that is different because of the organization dynamics i mean what 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 are the things that organizations have to do today to make the implementation and acceptance of a hybrid work model better yeah so in the research one of the things that we found was the big differentiator was this idea of intentional collaboration um you know, flexibility and empathy, they were two other defining characteristics. Uh, intentionality is one that was right up there as incredibly a, a winner, uh, as you say. And the, the concept of intentionality is this idea that if, if we think about the new hybrid work environment, the, the benefit of it is that we're introducing new ways of working. Um, and as we've spoken about, that is great because that is more accommodating and inclusive of a larger spread of individuals. If you just have nine to five in an office, that's gonna exclude a whole lot of people who don't like working that way. But in a hybrid work environment, we have more variety, we have more options. Um, it is a scientific fact that when you introduce new variables to an equation, you introduce complexity. And this is what we're now navigating is a complex work environment because we now have double, triple, quadruple the amount of ways of working as we did before. And that is where intentionality becomes really important. Uh, the way we've collaborated historically has always been a, a very spontaneous approach. It's, it's always been, let's gather around the water cooler and maybe I'll pass by your desk later on and maybe some sort of serendipity will come out of an interaction at some point. And we can't rely on that anymore because now we are faced with the very, very real reality of I don't know where I'm going to see you next. Like, unless I sit down and map out carefully, what is what is our work cycle going to look like? When should we come together? And thinking about all the different ways of working that are available to us, what makes sense? Where does it make sense? And I mean, even down to the most simple stuff, Jim, even down to why should we have a meeting? Because what we're seeing today is that everyone is doing meetings for everything. And that is causing meeting overloads. This is one of the questions we asked in the research, what makes a meeting worthwhile joining? And in our latest Microsoft research, the number one answer that came back was um, to get the information I need. And that, if you ask me, is an absurd use of a meeting. Like if, if I need to give my employees the information they need, that's what email is for. A meeting should be a place to ask questions, to brainstorm, to, to be creative. And that's not what meetings are being used for right now. So, so I think this idea of intentional collaboration is really to get down to basics around, let's be super intentional and respectful about people's time and energy. And that actually almost maps back to one of, one of the key benefits that you will hear again and again and again from employees about hybrid work, which is, I don't have to commute anymore. And if you think about what commuting is it, is, it is an expenditure of your time and of your energy. It is two hours a day that you'll never get back. And who knows how much energy spent standing on a train, you know, in a really crowded place, feeling really stressed. And getting that refunded for a lot of employees in and of itself was a huge benefit. And rescinding that, feels incredibly disrespectful, right? It feels like this is my time and my energy 
that you're that you're trying to grab a hold of what makes you think you can do that and so i think that's where winners that we've seen has have that understanding of time and energy finite resources we need to protect and use and allocate very intentionally you know that's 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 so profound not not illogical in any way but it's interesting because it makes the whole work environment become more of a value transfer mm. you know if you're going to ask me to come in what is going to be the value transfer i'm going to get back other than you saying i got to come in you know if you're going to ask me to attend a zoom meeting you know, is there going to be, am I actually there just because you want me there or because I'm going to be a part of that meeting and either from a learning or a, a distributing of, of, of insights perspective? You know, I, you know, people complained at the beginning of Zoom that people put their, their blank fit, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the meme up as opposed to them being there and you're going, is that person even really there? Well, that value transfer becomes an important component there, you know, and, and that's interesting because I, I guess I never thought about that that way. But at the end of the day, it, it gets to be very much like what you try to do with your customers and customers is, am I giving them the value to engage with me as opposed to just being a transactional engagement? So, you know, you've also found that the implementation approach matters massively. Why is a co-creating model so important with employees being involved in the process? I mean, from a financial institution perspective or any organization, why is it important to have people from both sides of the, the spectrum being involved in how a new process gets implemented? I mean, it seems, it seems logical, but I think that, you know, we take that for granted that you implement it. Here's the rule. You know, the old fashioned way is, Here's the new rules. Thank you very much. They're yours. Not, not, it's not been collaborative. Well, I was going to ask you, Jim, if you can see my bookcase behind me, right? I have this lovely, you know, three, three levels of uh, books in this beautiful white bookcase that many possibly listening and will know as the Billy Ikea bookcase. I spent two days building this bookcase. It was an effort. <laughs> It, it was it was hard work, uh, yeah. but I was incredibly yeah. proud. I will give no credit to my husband who helped me out with this. <laughs> but at the end of it, you know, it's a rickety bookshelf. It's not particularly sturdy. It's it's got issues, but it's there at, at, on every the call that I do. Hold it together. The bookshelf is together. It's holding my books. It's there at, on every call I do. It is the backdrop for every single customer call or team call or direct report call that I have. And as a result, I love this bookshelf. And I don't think I would love this bookshelf anywhere near as much if I'd have hired a lovely builder yeah. to come in and build it for me. And so just from a pure employee engagement standpoint, which we're now seeing in the research as well, is actually highly correlated to business outcomes and financial performance is whether or not your employees are engaged and satisfied in their job. The importance of co-creating your work model is obvious to me. You know, you are going to feel so much more invested and you're gonna care so much more about something you helped build than something that was forced on you. Oh, wow. Well, well, I, I see it come around. <laughs> it, you know, it, it's interesting too, because we are now seeing employees the demand for labor is insane right now. Uh, we have a very low unemployment rate. 
globally compared to what it was. We have a lot of people that are underemployed. We have some people that are unemployed. But the reality is people have choice. With that choice, is it going to be a, a bigger item going forward for organizations to show the flexibility of work, no matter where you are, no matter when you are, is that can be a major differentiator as far as getting what today is what I'm going to call the new employee, the, the employee that's being sought out for their technical skills, their, their, their innovative skills, all the skills that you really need the most. Is this, if, if organizations don't get this right, is it going to cost their bottom line a lot? I think a lot of that, a lot of the answer to that question depends on the market forces in play and which way the power is swinging towards in that sense. You know, whether there is high, how the supply demand um, equation is, which way it's trending essentially. But we do know from data that flexibility is a huge attraction driver for employees and they seek it out when they are looking for work and when they're looking for an employer. And I think it's, it is, it doesn't feel like a stretch to imagine that employers will understand that if it's a key attraction driver for employees and that's what's going to attract the best talent and the best skills, particularly in an era where it's fast evolving what we need from talent. You know, AI is being introduced into this world and it is going to require new skill sets. It's going to require complete transformation of how we do work. And my, my, guess would be that those employers that understand that offering flexibility is one of the key ways of driving talent attraction, that that would then become a differentiator for sure. Um, and I think, again, I've not seen in any data anything that shows that flexibility has an adverse impact on your bottom line. If anything, I've only ever seen flexibility highly correlated with big performance outcomes. So it's it feels like a win-win. So you had a recent paper published as on behalf of Microsoft where you found parallels between sports training principles and principles of the workplace. What's interesting about that paper, is, as I've had the discussion with you here, is that because you're very athletic, because you have a stake in what you wrote there and you have an understanding of what you wrote there, that became a, a, a better project for you. It's something you put your heart into because it wasn't just a typical research project. Can you walk us through some of the connections between the athletic and sports training principles and those around the future of work? Yeah, absolutely. I, I love talking about that research, so very happy to. Well, it's like your bookshelf, I think. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and it's a, you know, it's a great example as well of this idea of there is no, for me at least, there is no switch of work is done for the day. You know, this this idea for this research came from a session uh, that I was having, a training session with my wonderful strength and conditioning coach, uh, Sean, Sean Burke. And um, he was making me jump up and down a lot, a lot, like on and off boxes, quick rapid succession jumps. And you know, I'm a runner. That's my that's my discipline. Uh, I, you know, I do marathons and ultra marathons, and the reason I hired Sean was to help keep me injury free. And so the jumping I just didn't get, and I very grumpily um, <laughs> said to him, "Like, can we just do something related to running? Because this feels like a waste of my time." 
And he, Sean, is a very scientifically minded individual, um, you know, very, very grounded in research himself. And so he um, rightfully so pointed me towards the six principles of uh, sports performance. Uh, and these six principles, as I was reading through them, uh, it just became so apparent to me the parallel between these and the way we work. And so the principle related to jumping, jumping is the principle of specificity. Um, and the idea there is that, you know, you, you have to design your training around the discipline um, that you are uh, trying to reach a certain performance outcome. And if you think about what running is, running is essentially just a lot of jumps. You know, it is a lot of um, movement on your feet repeated again and again and again and again. So there was actually a clear link between the jumping and the running. And that's the principle of specificity. Um, the ones to me that felt um, more acute and more urgent for leaders to be aware of, um, the first was uh, the principle of uh, periodization. And the principle of periodization is this idea that we've always thought of performance as one uh, upward trending line where we just think performance is, it continues upward, 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 upward. But if you look at how athletes train, it is actually a series of peaks and troughs. You know, you train, you go upwards, you train to do your race, you do your performance, and then you come down and you have a trough, you have a rest, you have recovery, and then you start again. And we don't design work in that way. We don't design work as a series of cycles where we have peaks and then we have troughs. We design work to always be a continuous upward line. And as a result, I think we've seen a lot of burnout. And to me, it feels incredibly important that we think carefully about how are we designing rest and recovery into our work cycles. And I don't just mean holidays, weekends, like those are important things. I mean, when we're actually looking at employee workloads, and we're saying, okay, we're all working really hard to deliver at this conference. Make sure the week after that conference that it is a low peak week. Make sure that the workload in that week is nowhere near as high as it was the week before. Um, the other one that I think is really important is the principle of individualization. And the principle of individualization in, in athletic terms is that every athlete is different. Every athlete is made up genetically different and every athlete has different context, different circumstances, and you need to adapt your training plan accordingly. Um, so, you know, I am, I am a woman, <laughs> my husband is a man, and the way we train as a result is completely different. You know, we, we, our usual goal is around, you know, 60 miles a week, you know, it's 100, 100K a wow. week. For my husband, that takes him like, I don't know, less than, seven, eight hours. That's all he has to put in a week to get to 100K. For me, just because I'm a woman, naturally, biologically, I will be slower than him. It probably takes me two, three hours more than that. So the training plan needs to take that into account. It needs to take into account that we're different. And I think it's the same for work. If we, if we assume that everyone is the same, <laughs> then we're not setting them up for equal success. If you gave me my husband's training plan and I tried to train against it, I would get injured. And I think as we think about flexibility and we think about the power of flexibility to enable individualization, that's a really exciting thing for me because all of a sudden we're understanding, you know, some people work better at home, some people work better at night, some people work better in the morning. Um, so that I think is very promising that that principle of individualization is starting to come up a bit more. Wow. 
It, it's interesting because as you're saying that, I realize that even my work, um, I work remotely. I work from my home. But I have a different pattern of my work that I pretty much follow every day that's different than my wife's pattern of work or other people that I know and their pattern of work in that, you know, I, when do you, when do you like to run in the morning in the morning. evening or in morning. the middle of the day? Yeah. So that if you don't do that, that changes your day. It, if you had your, your employer said we have to have all morning meetings, that would completely impact your mojo every day and it would make it difficult. And, you know, I find that when I have the hardest days, I my wife is very used to me saying, I've got to go to the store real quickly and pick up something. I don't even know what I'm going to pick up in the middle of the day. But if I have a break, I need that break because otherwise I'm just in my office by myself getting down to work. So it's individualized patterns. It's a very good point. You know? Yeah, I was going to say, even just from a basic inclusivity perspective, like diversity and inclusivity, I remember when I was uh, an entry-level hire starting at my first job and the only times that I could run would be at six in the morning or at six, seven PM in the evening. Now, London in the dead of winter at six AM or at seven PM, it is dark. It is it is Oh yeah, it is very a dark, dark, <laughs> dark place. And as a young nineteen, twenty year old woman, you know, like you don't want to be running down dark streets. But no. you feel like you have no choice, right? Like those are my work hours. I'm not gonna, right. as a, a young 20 year old, go up to my employer and say, hey, do you mind if I just take an hour in the middle of my day to go running? Um, and that to me feels again, like if we're thinking about how can we be inclusive, we need to think about something as as, as important and as, as a, you know, as that affects work as much as women's safety. And so for me, the ability to go running at 10 or 11 a.m. now because I work from home is game changing. It is game changing. I don't wake up in the morning yeah. every day thinking I'm really worried about being harassed on my run, which, by the way, happened on a daily basis when I was running in that way. Yeah. So, yeah, I yeah. think it, it, it just has such a big ripple effect. Yeah. And, and oh, by the way, you make up for it. It's not like it's lost hours. It's, it, you, you consciously you know, the normal human is going to make up for that because they have they have things they have to still finish. So finally, you know, I, I think, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think a lot of financial institutions really are battling the reaction versus being proactive in this space. They're, they're doing things because everybody's doing them. They're, you know, I, I realized I was in London about six months ago and I was there on a, a Thursday night. I was in the, uh, in a, a really nice uh, eating district and the streets were mobbed. And I'm thinking to myself going, what is going on here? Is there a holiday tomorrow? They go, no, tomorrow's Friday. And most organizations have a three-day work week and everybody takes Friday off. And so the Friday is the old Saturday. I'm going like, oh my God, it feels like college again, university <laughs> again, where we all made a, avoided Friday classes. But things are changing. But I, I, I get the feeling, and maybe I'm wrong, that a lot of organizations are simply doing what others are doing. Mm -hmm. What recommendations would you give financial institutions or any organization today if they were to actually start to be intentional about finding a better way? Maybe it's not the same way as every organization like them. Maybe it's specific to their organization around their own, their own you know, brand and their own culture. What are the three things organizations have to do? Three things. <laughs> you want me to enumerate them? <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. The, the, the I'm sorry. The top three things. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I think 
The first thing I would do is talk to your employees. I think that has to be top amongst where you're going to go is soliciting your employees' feedback and perspective and inviting them to exactly to our conversation to co-create whatever model you put in place. Because your employees are so tied to your financial success. Uh, and we, you know, it's a very cynical thing to say is care about your employees because they're tied to your financial success. We should care about our employees in general because they're humans and because they matter. Um, right. But ultimately, you know, if you are thinking about your business goals, your employees really do matter for those as well. So that would be the first thing I would do is set up a feedback system, a way of soliciting uh, points of view and perspectives around what the future of work looks like. You know, that's one of the questions I love asking asking my team. It's, yeah. if you're the leader of this organization, what does the future of how we work look like? Like, what does your average week look like? What does your weekday look like? Um, so put that system in place, make sure you have that way of collecting that feedback. Um, I think the second piece then is to be very clear about um, what your goals are, like what are your key KPIs? What are the things that matter most to your business? And listen to the data because the temptation will be to listen to your gut in the sense of we have 50, probably more, 50 to 100 years of history telling us to feel a certain way. If one of your key goals, which it should be obviously, is employee productivity and all the data is telling you that hybrid and remote workers are more productive, that means something. Like that means something, but your gut is gonna wanna tell you but on-site workers should be more productive because they're in the office and the office has always been the place where work gets done. Listen to the data. The data does not lie. As a researcher, I obviously believe that <laughs> very, very much. Yeah. Um, and then the third piece um, that I think there's something inherently true about this moment in time where being agile, being willing to adapt, and a lot of that is tied to empathy, is a game-changing approach, I think, because the pace of work is so quick now and things evolve so quickly and we are not operating in siloed boxes anymore. We're not operating in just one standardized way. You know, as we mentioned, there are a multitude of different ways to work now and employees are attaching to different ones. So being able to be adaptive, to be responsive, uh, to be agile and to flex, I think is a very important investment to make at this moment in time. And being sort of stubbornly rooted in trying to hold on to something that's not working or something that might have worked in the past, I don't think is setting you up for success. Um, Boy, those, you know, those three are really key because as you were saying, I'm thinking, you know, look at the numbers, look at research, but, but the research has to be on your employees because I'm sorry, there's research that you can find that's going to support both sides of the equation. You can only hold on to the research that supports your thought pattern as opposed to what your employees are saying. That's so key. And then we talk in the banking industry about how personalized customer experiences and how important hyper-personalization is. I think we have to take that internal and say, we got to personalize our employee experiences and be able to be flexible. You know, what is the model Bob wants rather than Joanne? You know, what's the model that Jim wants rather than Alexia? And they're not going to be the same. 
we live lives differently. We're we're single. We're not single. We're, we're we have pets. We don't have pets. We have kids. We don't have kids. We have older kids. We have younger kids. That flexibility is tougher, but the rewards are greater. And and you know all I can tell you is we can go on for hours because this is a really interesting thing and it's foundational. And I think there's a problem here that organizations don't realize that they have. They think they've answered the question by giving people two days a week. That, that, that may not be good for, for somebody that says, I've got to be in the office five days a week, or I can't be in the office two days a week. Make sure you know the risk reward because it's going to be significant. Alexia, thank you so much for being on the show today. And, and I really appreciate our discussion. We are going to have you back again <laughs> because, because I think there's a deeper dive in some of these things. We just scratched the surface on some of the theoretical issues. I appreciate the fact you're continually doing research. Everybody, continue to follow Alexia. The research she does is extraordinary. Some of it's fun, the one on the, uh, the connecting the athletic with the uh, human performance in, in work, human, hybrid work environment. It's really key. And I think people can relate to it because it, it's nice to see it in a different perspective. Again, thank you so much for being on the Thanks show. Thanks so much, Jim. I had loads of fun. Great conversation. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. We really appreciate the support we've received in making this endeavor a success. If you enjoy what we're doing, please take some time to show some love in the form of a review. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research we're doing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our senior producer, Leah Hassage, audio engineer, Chris Fafalius, and video producer, Will Pritz. If you've not already done so, remember to subscribe to Bank and Transform on both your favorite podcast app and on YouTube for more thought-provoking discussions on the intersection of finance, technology, and leadership. And remember, the future of work is human. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.